Hi and welcome everybody. This is the Nick Dora Show, an experiment by yours truly. I've decided to try out podcasting for a limited number of episodes to see if this is fun and useful for both you, the listeners, as well as myself. The episodes I've lined up feature great guests with really interesting insights into this business of animation. I'll be putting out one episode a week for the next three weeks, and I'll continue thereafter if you think I should. To that end, I ask you for your straight-up feedback. Please let me know what you thought about any of the episodes, either through email, nick at nickdora.com, that's N-I-C-K at N-I-C-K-D-O-R-R-A.com, on Twitter, where my handle is Andorra, or on the LinkedIn episode posts. If you really like what you hear, please consider giving the podcast a five-star rating so that it will show up for other people looking for similar content. This episode is kindly sponsored by CellAction, developers of CellAction 2D, the 2D animation software used on some of the most successful series in the world, like Peppa Pig, Bluey, and Mr. Bean. In this episode, I have the pleasure to speak with animation legend Fred Seibert. Fred is the founder of Frederator Networks, the chief creative officer of WOW Unlimited Media, and a serial entrepreneur. He was the first creative director of MTV and the last president of Hanna-Barbera Cartoons. Fred founded Next New Networks, which was acquired by YouTube. He is on the board of directors of Sawhorse Media and was the first investor in Tumblr. Frederator Networks is Channel Frederator, the leading online cartoon network. Frederator Studios, an independent production company with hits on Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. Cartoon Hangover, the home of Bravest Warriors and BM Puppycat, which is the most funded web series in Kickstarter history. And Frederator Books. Frederator distributes hundreds of independently owned animator-operated YouTube channels. Wow Unlimited Media is the merger of Frederator, Rainmaker Entertainment and Ezrin Hirsch, which was founded by veteran producer Bob Ezrin and animation pioneer Michael Hirsch. With this breathtaking intro, let's get on to hear what Fred has to say. Welcome to the show, Fred. So great to have you. Nick, it's a pleasure always. <laughs> um, tell me, um, how... How are you today? How is uh, how is Wow doing? What's what's your day been like today? Is there? I mean, we're we're recording this in the middle of the whole COVID nineteen situation, but uh, kind of as a general placing you on the map kind of intro. What's what's up at your end right now? Well, right now, um, aside from the logical social distancing that pretty much about 450 of us across WOW have to do. Everything is going rather smoothly given the circumstances. Um, in the United States, uh, we have about uh, 25 permanent employees across New York and Los Angeles. Everybody is uh, comfortably working from home and just going a little stir crazy, um, being locked up in their various apartments. Um, and we have a production going out of Austin, Texas, and Korea that continues to go smoothly, um, thank goodness. In Vancouver, where we have the bulk of our colleagues, there's about 400-plus people there. And their technology has been put in gear for them to be able to work on CG productions for our various clients at Mattel, DreamWorks, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and it is going smoothly, you know, slightly under productivity, but probably uh, gearing up to get back up to productivity. Luckily, everyone is healthy. And I think that that is the most important thing. And so far, spirits seem to be up. So thank you for asking. <laughs> that's that's great to hear. That's good to hear. Keeping people safe. That's the number one concern. Absolutely. Um, how how have you, I mean, you have a great bio uh, online as well of your, was it five or six or how many uh, lives already? Five <laughs> lives is the one that we're accounting anyway. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, and, you know, people can read up on that in more detail. But um, if if you want to give us like a couple of highlights on your way to your current situation, you know, at, at the co-helm of those 450 people and and all these projects and so on um what what has brought you here today well you know i always joke that i have had much less of a career than i have been a ping pong ball in a wind tunnel and in retrospect the wind that has driven me is the winds of pop culture um i started out wanting to be a musician and record producer because i grew up in the pop music era of the beatles etc etc and uh i had bands i recorded i produced records um, primarily in the jazz field um, traditional jazz um, in new york city um, that was not very lucrative. I didn't have the right personality to figure that out and wandered into radio through college radio, which got me into television, which completely by accident, uh, allowed me to become the first creative director of MTV, which was a, a fantastic experience that sort of set the path in motion that I've been following all these years. Um, that was successful, obviously. Um, I was the first employee at MTV. I ended up being the first employee to resign from MTV on a senior level. But luckily, um, the powers that be there hired me back right away with my partner as a consultant. And we rebuilt Nickelodeon for them, which helped us get into the kids business. We took Nickelodeon from being the worst in the television ratings in the United States to the first in the television ratings in a six month period, which really cemented our reputations. And I got introduced to not just the children's television business, which I had had no insight into, but the animation business. And after many years of having this company that ended up being the first company pretty much in the world to think about the concept of branding in the television space, uh, Ted Turner's company asked me to come and try and help revive the Hanna-Barbera studios. Once again, I had absolutely no experience in animation other than doing commercials. And I certainly had no experience in cartoons But there were a variety of factors driving me. Uh, my partner and I were driving each other crazy in New York. Uh, I was getting divorced. Um, I needed a break from my clients at um, in the television business. And I left New York one day, 
flew to Los Angeles, walked into the Hanna-Barbera studios for the first time in my life as the president of the studio, which was kind of <laughs> bizarre and weird. <laughs> um, and from then on, you know, uh, animation has been my life. Cartoons really is the way that I put it, have been my life with one more detour which is that for a year I ran MTV and Nickelodeon's online business uh, during the internet consumer internet explosion of the late 90s, which introduced me into this new interactive space many years before my television peers so I could get a head start on that. And that has sort of been the last pole of pop culture that has driven me through uh, the cartoon business all these years. That's quite impressive. Um, and I already made a lot of a lot of notes to follow up <laughs> on. Um, you, you said you said just to uh, jump back uh, into the beginning, you were you said you were not the right personality to figure out um, the uh, the jazz, jazz producer part. What, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, the, the secret of being a record producer, in my opinion, is creating an environment where the musicians are very, very comfortable and are willing to take the creative chances that they need to take to make greatness. And I was very, very focused on the result and in the, um, partly in the technology and, you know, what it took to capture a sound correctly, et cetera, et cetera. I really let the musicians deal with the music their way. But what I didn't have the right chemistry to do is create that kind of personal bond that you need between the creative team and the um and the actual result of the process i i didn't i just didn't make friends enough you know and it wasn't you know because i didn't want to it was i didn't realize how important the personal chemistry was in that process mm -hmm. and so i would get to the studio you know a half hour before the musicians to set up and when we were done we would shake hands and say goodbye Mm -hmm. And that was all well and good. And the records I made were perfectly wonderful because of those musicians. But I don't think I was the right person to help them expand their vision and really soar in the right way. Mm -hmm. By the way, you're you... the first person that asked me that question ever. So it's <laughs> the first time I ever really thought about it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I'll... I'll dig a little bit deeper then uh if, if we're already there um do you feel that there is that, that 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 is unique to the um to jazz record making or record making in general uh or does that transfer to to other endeavors whether it's business or creative i think it it transfers to everything in the universe you know um the, the, you know, we're going through the social distancing moment right now. And uh, I think people are at the beginning of realizing the connections with other people is part of what inspires humanity to greatness and to think beyond 
the four walls of their brain. Yep. And, you know, I, I'm sure everybody is not like that. There are many great artists who, you know, sit by themselves writing or painting or drawing or whatever it is that they might, or accounting, <laughs> you know, they're great artists in every field in the world. But um, I have found that the interaction with people is what sparks freshness and sparks ideas that maybe never would have occurred to a solitary human being uh, uh, sitting there. And certainly in the work that I was in, which was uh, by accident, pretty much, I was working with African-American jazz musicians. They were 15 or 20 years older than I was on average. And we culturally in every way came into the room from different places. And I just didn't do enough work to understand that there was that huge gap and like how to, you know, pull it together and put us into the same mental space or similar or simpatico um, mental spaces. Mm -hmm. Do you think that in your current work that you are able to, um, to sense those situations now better? And uh, then follow-up question, if so, uh, what have you learned that, that, has, that now lets you do that? Well, you know, I do think that I've gotten better at it, um, or it, at the very least understood when I can be better at it and when it doesn't work. Um, mm -hmm. So to go backwards, you know, when I decided to become a producer, I'd been a musician And I decided that I wasn't going to work hard enough to be as good a musician as I wanted to be. And since my model was the Beatles, I knew about the four Beatles in depth. And about the only other thing I knew about was this guy who was called their producer, a guy called George Martin. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I knew about him is that he was in charge of capturing the magic and helping foster the magic. But I also knew that he was 20 years older than the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And I thought... Gee, I don't really know what a producer does, but if I um, decide to become a producer, that means maybe I'll have 20 years to really figure out what I need to do for a job. And interestingly, it was at one of these jazz sessions that I had that I got the clue that gave me the secret for what would eventually become my cartoon business, which was I was working with a bunch of older musicians, like I said, African-American who I did not know, they did not know me. And I was working in a studio that was the most famous jazz studio in the world in the New York area. And I didn't know the head of the studio either, who was actually more famous than any of the musicians. And I was so excited to be working with him that I just asked him a thousand questions. And he was very gruff and answered, you know, basically yes, no to pretty much everything. <laughs> and When we started the, when we were going to start the recording, I, one of my jobs was to say, take one, <laughs> you know, and everybody, you know, the machines could start and musicians could start. So I said, take one, nothing. The, the engineer did not press the button. I said, take one again. And he did not press the button. And I finally was like, Rudy, did I do something wrong? His name was Rudy Van Gelder. And uh, he said, well, you keep looking at me and my equipment. I said, yeah, well, you know, I'm really interested in what you do. You do such great work. And he goes, don't be. 
if you like what I do, come here and let me do it. And if you don't, go somewhere else. And I'm like, I don't know what to say at this point. And he goes, look, I work with the most famous producers in history. You know, yes, Mr. Van Gelder, I, I know, I, you know. And he, uh, he said, they understood that they only had one job, which is to put the right person in the room out there. And up until then, I had been sort of really focused on what was the microphone? Where did it go in the piano? How does it get the best saxophone sound, et cetera, et cetera. And he was telling me that something else was more important which was, did I have anything to do with putting the lead creative person in that room, which I did not. I had been assigned that room by the record company. And from then on, I slowly started losing interest in all of the machinations of the process of capturing the creative work and focus much more on the people doing the creative work. And it wasn't until I really got into animation that I was able to put that fully to work because the truth was that day that I walked into Hanna-Barbera, I was 40 years old. I had never been in a cartoon studio in my life. I had been in a couple of commercial studios and I knew that I knew nothing. And I started to understand the first time someone came in to pitch me that I needed to understand who that person was and whether I believed that they could be a person that had the thing, that magical mystery alchemy thing that could make for greatness. And I started focusing on those people and then secondarily what they were bringing in to show me. And just by thinking about them more than their project, I started creating that kind of empathetic space, I feel, that has given us the possibility to succeed over the years. That sounds a bit akin to what you also hear from even, you know, in the realm of, of startups where, where investors say that the idea is secondary to the team uh, that they're evaluating. That is exactly right. And, you know, in the startups that I've been involved with, I have found that to be true myself. It is the people in the end. Yeah. You know, those are the that that is the magic resides in a human, not in a project. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have I mean, when, when, when you talk about it as magic, of course, it, it, it sounds a bit hard to pin down. Uh, and, you know, you might not have a checklist that, that you sort of hold up against the person who, who, who comes into your office. But what sorts of thought exercises or, or frameworks or, or any tools do you have to, to gauge whether that person has that magical thing needed for greatness? So, you know, um, I think I've told you before, Nick, I met my wife on a blind date. And uh, when I was 40, right around the time that I started at Hanna-Barbera, and she was a uh, record executive who specialized in music videos during the days that music videos were the most important thing, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, um, I did what you do on a blind date, even though I knew exactly who she was and what her track record was, which was amazing. She won the first 
a video music award at MTV. She had just done all of the great Nirvana stuff for the uh, Nevermind album. But I said, okay, so what do you do? Thinking I knew exactly what she did. And she surprised me by saying that she looked at her roster every day to try and figure out who were the stars. And I was really confused by this. And I was like, well, you mean, do they look a certain way or do they have a certain kind of talent? And she said, oh, Fred, you know, none of that matters. And I was completely stunned and shocked. I'm like, their talent doesn't matter. You make music videos the way they look doesn't matter. She said, well, you know, I think the thing that matters is that it starts with this blinding narcissism, this self-confidence, this need for people to pay attention to what, who they are and what they're doing. And I, I was like completely confused. And she said, you know, they go out on stage and there are 10,000 people in the audience and they come off stage angry that there aren't 100,000 out there. <laughs> and I'm like, I, now my mind is reeling because as we went on in the conversation, what she basically was telling me is no one was successful by accident which was completely the opposite of what I understood about the pop business. You know, I, I had heard about one hit wonders and that people, you know, sleeper successes that came from nowhere. And she kind of explained to me that no one succeeded by accident and that they had to want to succeed more than anything else. And, you know, to expand that out, what I came to realize as I got to know her better was that, Yes, talent is important. Skill is important, certainly in the animation business. But the third leg of the stool, which I had never considered before, was motivation, ambition, confidence. And I had really never understood that part of the puzzle. And I have seen it over and over again. You know, I, you know that... Um, one of the key components of Federator's process is that we make short films. We've made 250 short films over the years. And there were some really, really wonderful films in that group that never went past the short. And if I look at it, you know, uh, completely objectively, it had to do with the fact that while the filmmaker was happy to make a good short, they were just as happy to get a job on somebody else's film rather mm -hmm. than the film having to be their own. And back to what Rudy Van Gelder told me in that New Jersey studio that day, it was about that person's drive to need to tell the story that they had, need to make those characters that they had come alive, that absolute elemental human need to communicate through their film and through their characters. That was the necessary component that I had never really clicked in on before that minute that my wife was giving me this, the key to my future. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But that's because that, that is, that is so much more than, than just, you know, talking about the magic i think that I, I love this because this this is much more i mean e even though uh you know you can't put 
motivation necessarily on 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 a, very easily on an absolute scale but it's already something that you can look for in people you can with the right questions start to suss out and then you know you have you have this if if you will a kind of pilot program where where, where you use the short films as a way to sort of job interview also people if if you right. know for for the next step in their career well in, let in me step point. it let me step it into an animation story that I think will, you know, bring this home. So um, I got into the animation, the cartoon business in 1992. And in 2005, thereabouts, I was making a set of shorts um, with Nickelodeon that eventually be called, was called Random Cartoons. It was 39 short films. And one day I was in our Los Angeles studio taking what ended up being probably 10 or 15 pitches during the course of the day. And one of them was from a young guy who had uh, just graduated from CalArts um, in the Los Angeles area and was pitching us what would be his first foray into commercial work outside of his student work. And uh, w when we got together at the end of the day to figure out um, what uh, what we were going to actually go forward with, um, when this project came up, I looked at my colleagues and I said, well, of course, we're not going to do that. And they looked at me like strangely and they well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, the guy, he's not the greatest artist in the world and he's only one month out of school. And, you know, we're not here to make, you know, glorified student films you know, we're looking for, you know, things that are going to go the distance. And they said, well, you know, this is really good. I said, you know, come on, he's this, that, and the other thing. And finally, luckily, one of my colleagues, you know, who wouldn't let me out of the room, you know, and with a no, looked at me and said, you know, most of the time in these meetings, you laugh, but it's a fake laugh. This time you really laughed. And I said, well, have you seen his student films? And they went, well, yeah, sort of. And I said, well, look, uh, wh why don't you bring him in and let me talk with him and, you know, let me see what, you know, what's on his mind. So, uh, you know, a couple of days later, the young man came in. I said, so, you know, what are you up to? Like, what do you want to do now that you've graduated from school and all that? He goes, well, you know, I grew up with some of the cartoons you made at Hanna-Barbera at that moment, making me feel incredibly old. <laughs> um, and, uh, he said, you know, I, I would like to do that. I would like to make those kind of cartoons. And I realized in his own quiet way, he was telling me that he wanted to succeed. And again, going back to my conversation with my wife, that desire to succeed, not just to produce, but to succeed, meaning that he could make a film that would touch people on some level or other made me realize that that along with my genuine laugh that I had in his, uh, in his pitch meant that making an adventure time short with Pendleton Ward wouldn't be a bad shot. And the <laughs> fact was that we were making 39 shorts and the chances were that 37 or 38 of them would go nowhere. I was like willing to take that risk, you know, one out of 39. And as you know, not only did we end up doing a series on Adventure Time, but it became one of the most exciting series that me or my team has ever had anything to do with. 
And honestly, what it taught me at that particular moment in time, which was that I was 55 years old or something like that, is that I no longer could be the person who could make the final decision as to who had to be in that room. Mm. That I was too far away from the core of what made people excited about contemporary comedy and that I needed to change my role in the process. So back to your, you know, initial question of, you know, have I changed? The truth is, is that over the decades, every decade, I probably have a slightly different role in the process, but the core role of my understanding that that right person had to be in place has just become firmer in my uh, philosophy of how we have to, you know, run our business. Mm. Yeah, uh, you've you've said that uh, you're you see yourself as a, yourself as a professional fan. Do you do you still agree? Oh, completely. Completely. What, what 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 then does a professional fan do? How 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 do they get, you know? Uh, because usually you you would you would think that the fan is is the one paying the artist and and how to how do you turn into a a, a professional fan when you're not the as you said you knew that you would not be the person um, eager enough to to learn an instrument practice so hard that you know it it makes you one of the Beatles uh, what what does the professional fan do so that uh, you know that they that they are the best they can at what they're doing. Well, you know, this all starts back with my fandom of the Beatles because my life changed because of it. Virtually everyone in my family is some kind of scientist or other. We have biochemists. My son is a physicist. I went to college for chemistry originally. And six weeks into my college life, I looked at my lab mate and I said, you know, I like the Beatles more than this. And after what had then been a lifetime of wanting to be a chemist, I walked out and I never looked back uh, because um, that fire, that heat that came from the Beatles that transferred into my head that made me want to be part of it was like, you know, was the thing that was burning brightest. And What started then is, you know, pretty soon after that, I started um, an independent record company to make blues and jazz records. And the way that my partners and I decided what records to make is who did we love that we felt wasn't getting enough attention and could we help bring the world attention, world's attention to them? Now, we didn't do all that well in that record company, though we did, in fact, always record artists that we believe were deserving of more recognition. And I started to develop a process by which I looked at a talented, motivated person who had captured my attention and then said, how can I help this person? What it really came down to is, could I help somebody do what they wanted to accomplish? And so as a professional fan, you know, a fan is one of the ways you help as a general fan, right? Is you might buy the record, you might buy a concert ticket, you might buy a t-shirt. All of those things are not only helping 
to spread your love of your artists that you're paying attention to, but you're helping them financially get from here to there, from step one to step two. So um, as a now a dyed-in-the-wool professional now for almost 50 years, what I'm always doing is trying to find out if there's somebody who I admire, is there anything I can do to help them? Now, sometimes there is, by the way, often there is not, you know, and at that point, I just have to merely be a fan, just like everyone else. <laughs> but I can step up. I can, in a uh, pre and post social distancing moment, shake their hand and go, I'm here to help. You know, what can I do? And sometimes people are interested in that help. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes we become friends for life without ever doing any, anything together. And sometimes we do something together that bonds us together for life. Yep. Yeah, that uh, it sounds like you've uh, you've had the opportunity to to do that with with a lot of people, and that's it's really amazing to see uh, you know the breadth also of the work uh, that has that has resulted from those short films and 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 of everything else. Um, I'm curious to go back to one more of the of the pieces in in the timeline in the beginning uh where you where you said that within six months you uh you took nickelodeon from uh in your words from the worst to the first uh <laughs> among among the among the kids networks um looking back was there was there something that what was not let's say unique to the to the situation or unique to a, a a particular um yeah yeah the situation at that time something that would be transferable that you learned that you've maybe applied since because it, it, it strikes me as something quite of an achievement it, it was an achievement and it was one that was on one hand unique to the time which was that in American television, you know, in the year that Nickelodeon started working with us, the average home in America had two channels of television, but they were on their way to expanding to hundreds of channels of television. At the time, there, you know, if you were one of the few million homes in America that had cable television, you might have 30 channels. And Nickelodeon was number 30 out of 30. Um, And when, you know, now this is where, as my uh, ex-boss from MTV and Nickelodeon calls it, there's magic and there's math. And the truth was that the math told us the story, which was that 44% of the homes that had cable television at the time tuned into Nickelodeon at least once a week and stayed for less than six minutes. Yet the woman who was running Nickelodeon said, you know, we don't understand it. We are the first people to have done research with children across the country. And we have chosen the programs. We, we didn't make the programs. We licensed the programs, you know, that were already made. And we checked them with kids all over the country, boys and girls from ages five to age 11. And they like these shows. We can't understand why they don't watch them. And... 
so we went with the premise that she was right. We didn't understand children's television at the time, so we were not the right people to judge uh, their decisions. But we assumed, okay, they're smart people. They probably made those decisions intelligently. So yes, kids ought to like those shows. But when we dug into it and we did a little research uh, with Nickelodeon uh, on their audience, we found out that whether a child was 11 years old or five years old, they thought that Nickelodeon was for babies. And they just yeah. defined babies as anyone just a year younger than them. An 11 year old thought a nine or 10 year old was a baby. And a five year old thought a four year old was a baby. And there was something about the way that Nickelodeon was telling its story, some way about the way they were communicating that story that um, reinforced that feeling you know, of those children that it wasn't for them, basically. So what my partner and I did to make a very long story short is we reorganized first the exact way that communications were put onto Nickelodeon, how often they ran, how long they were, how many different messages they told in the course of a day, of a week, of a month, of a year. And then we listened very, very carefully to the woman who ran Nickelodeon, a woman named Jerry Laybourne and her team, about all of the things that were not just factual, but they were these things that they believed in. They had a belief system about how they made their choices for Nickelodeon. And, and this team really believed these things. This was not a business proposition for them. This was, uh, it's, it's hard to put into words, but it was a mission that they had for children. That's really what it came down to. And we figured out a way to put that mission first into words and then into storytelling and then into execution of those stories in a way that excited children. And six months after we started this process, which was a mathematical process, an organizational process, a storytelling process, a creative process, and an execution process, when we put all those things together, put them on air, gave Nickelodeon a new voice. I put the word voice in quotes. It was, you know, the way we told those stories that less than six minutes once a week of the people who tuned into Nickelodeon had turned into an average of 30 minutes. Yeah. And going from that six minutes to 30 minutes is what got them from worst to first in the ratings. Yeah. So in, in a way... Uh, what you did is you you also I mean as I said it was a multi-tiered process um, but it was it was really listening to the to the fans about their perception uh, exactly how they're being talked to and then figuring out if that's the right way that you will that that you want to be presenting yourself correct to them. Um, because that that ties into in, into another in, into one more point that I that I wanted to touch on, uh, you've voiced very strong opinions on owning or at least having a parallel um, connection or, or way of communicating with with your fans if if you're a creative or if you're a studio or whatever. Um, 
do you do you want to speak speak to that a little bit like how for different kinds of uh of players in the animation business how how that could you know what you've seen good uh approaches to that look like sure well you know again um i've been lucky enough that i had an experience of um understanding that there was there was a conventional wisdom there is a conventional wisdom that if you make a great show people will find it and maybe that was true in a world where there were only average two channels of television and it was very regimented as to you know what was possible what wasn't to watch but in the first case of nickelodeon being you know one of 30 channels and eventually it becoming one of hundreds of channels and now in the world that we live in it being millions of channels uh, tens of millions of channels how you tell that story that idea that i mentioned that what we were doing is telling a story of nickelodeon resonated for me in all sorts of different ways i got my professional media start in the radio business and the plain fact of the matter was that in new york city where i was working there were almost 80 radio stations and long before television learned how to compete radio understood that in order for them to stay in business they had to develop a unique personality and communicate that personality to an audience. And so all the way through my work life, whether it was the fantastic record covers that the Beatles did, or eventually what I saw that uh, the jazz record business did, particularly Blue Note Records, whether it was a radio station that had developed, you know, the wild and wacky personality or the very cool and poetic personality or, or the, you know, the uh, Polish polka personality, right? Every one of <laughs> these places had figured out how to tell their story using the limitations of the medium that they had. And my partner and I, Alan Goodman, were able to put that to work in the television space. But when the internet came out, I realized immediately that we had a chance to tell our own story our own way outside of the confines of the giant corporations that we had been forced to work with. Not, I mean, when I say forced, um, it was the only possibility. If you wanted to make films and you wanted those films to be seen by the public, you needed to figure out a way, um, uh, a way to work with those people and their corporate and their corporations. I, um, decided that the internet gave us the tools to become our own storytellers and our own communicators. And it started really simply with a blog. It then expanded to a hundred blogs. It then expanded to, you know, uh, iTunes, you know, doing video when iTunes could support video and eventually to YouTube where in addition to making what we believed would would be wonderful little videos that as part of those videos we had a story to tell where we could develop our own personality and our own relationship with an audience and honestly i think that that is the most exciting thing for independent creative people or for corporate creative people, any kind of creative person or operation in the world 
that we now all have the chance to create our own set of relationships that can help build our business. You know, we run an animation network on YouTube um, called the Channel Federator Network. It's a multi-channel network where individual people own their own YouTube channels and uh, come together in our network where we try and help them perform better and reach people more. And there are sole proprietors around the world that are making hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars on their own channel, making their own videos their own way because they have figured out a way to tell that story to an audience. And it's, I think it's an amazing change in the world. Look, the world is a complicated place. It's a complex place. You know, two and a half billion people watch YouTube every month. They're, like I said, there are tens of millions of channels there and doing the right job to stand out and make it work and all that. It, you know, it's not easy and it gets harder by the day. But what's possible today that was never possible for most of my professional life is that possibility to create that bond with an audience that... Um, if you want to, could last, you know, almost forever. That is a very good note, I think, to, to wrap up on. Uh, and uh, I, have, I have a whole lot of questions I could still be going on about, but uh, let's see if we, if we do a part two at I some point. Uh, but I, I, I think, yeah. Yeah, this um, this has been a really, really great conversation. Thanks so much. Is there anything that uh, you would want to say to the audience of, of of this podcast that I that I haven't asked you about? Anything in particular that you'd want to uh, impart? I think that we are living in an amazing moment. Um, with all the challenges in life that we all are, uh, you know, dealing with, sometimes they, right now, you know, those are physical and health challenges. Sometimes they're political challenges. Sometimes they're economic challenges. With all of those things, you know, as a given, the ability for us to, who are creative people to be able to find a space in the world to do what we do, do it to the um, best of our ability, and to find a way to survive with it is unparalleled in you know humankind. And you know, I guess the only thing I can say, especially in our world that we're um, dealing with right now, is I hope we use that power for good. And, you know, right now for kindness and not for evil purposes, <laughs> but um, I think that that is a fantastic moment. And having spent my life at a pursuit that has sometimes seemed trivial, you know, in the greater universe, um, I don't find it trivial that uh, I, for one, feel like I'm in a business where I get to work with people every day trying to make other people happy. And for those of us who are in the creative business, you know, we are 
working really, really hard to really, you know, touch people on some level or other. And this is a great moment for everyone in this pursuit to um, fulfill their dreams and uh, share those dreams with the world. I think it's a great thing. And uh, I appreciate your having me as a guest, Nick. Thanks so much, Fred, and thank you for for your inspiring words and 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 being a guest on this. Thanks. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Please uh, do send me your feedback. Do give the podcast a five star rating if you enjoyed what you heard, and if you want to. Be kept in the loop on upcoming episodes you can go to nickdora.com forward slash blog to sign up for the newsletter so you'll be notified about the next episode take care hear you soon